again, friends, and welcome to Madison Bookbeat, your listener-sponsored community radio home for Madison authors, topics, book events, and publishers. I'm your host, Stu Levitan. Today's program hits for the cycle as we welcome George Hesselberg. His book, <laughs> Deadlines, Slices of Life from the Obit Beat, a collection of obituary-based stories he wrote for the Wisconsin State Journal from 1979 to 2017, was just published by our very good friends at the Wisconsin Historical Society Press, and yes. was the subject of an event a few days ago sponsored by Mystery to Me Bookstore, which is still available for virtual viewing. It is an inescapable truth that every person and animal on this planet is going to die. Some will die in glory, some will die in shame, most will die in private, their passing unnoticed by all outside their circle of family and friends, or their passing would go unnoticed were it not for their newspaper obituary. <laughs> Usually, the obituary is a straightforward account of the signposts and milestones of their lives, dates and places, marital and family status, occupation, hobbies, details of the visitation and funeral. But in the hands of a journalist with unbounded curiosity and great style, an obituary can prompt an account that transcends the commonplace and becomes a piece of writing worthy of collecting and publishing in a book. A journalist that is like George Hesselberg and a book like Deadlines, Slices of Life from the Obit Beat. And what lives they were. The unofficial mayor of the Mazomany Nude Beach, oh, UW Charlie Police Wolf. Chief yeah. Ralph Hansen, pioneering Madison Policewoman Mary Ostrander, the avatar of attorney advertising Ken Hur, folk artist Simon Sparrow, legendary sandal maker Cecil Burke, and fourth-generation cobbler Michael J. Falci Jr., yeah. a radio villain, a short-order cook, an esteemed academic, sword maker, beloved rural doctor, circus owner, a Holocaust survivor, and scores more. 66 entries in all, and not all of them about human beings. These are not stories about their deaths. These are stories about their lives. George Hesselberg followed the traditional path to a career in journalism, cheesemaker, sign painter, stagehand, candy hawker, a series of jobs in Norway, including night watchman, bartender, and translator. And most relevant of all for today's discussion, he was a grave digger. Then he settled down to a 45-year career with the Wisconsin State Journal, first as a general assignment and regional reporter, then as the paper's most popular columnist. He retired from the paper in 2017, and thankfully for us, continues to write. His previous books include a collection of columns from 30 years ago, Paint Me Green and Call Me Fern, his coverage of the 1994 Winter Olympics in Norway, Olympic Moose Salami and Other Lillehammer Tales, and the children's books, Vesper Stories and Special Days, Special Tales. A native of Bangor, Wisconsin, he holds a BA in Journalism and Scandinavian Studies and lives in Fitchburg. Thanks a lot, uh, Stuart. It's a pleasure to see you always. The world of journalism that you and I entered in the 70s no longer exists. No. Explain what the Obit Beat was. The Obit Beat to start out, when I started as a, as a university student, you just took phone calls from the funeral homes and typed up their obits of their customers and put it in the paper. It was not classified obits. It wasn't paid. It was just put in the paper. And that's what we did all day as young starting out uh, journalists, which was good, good ground, good grounding for learning how to make sure things are correct. Because once you do an obit, you can't, you can't correct it. Once it's in the paper, you're dead and you're dead. So 
How did you get into it and how long did you stay there? Oh, I started as a, you know, as a part-timer at the State Journal in 1972, along with about 10 other young journalism students because they're, we had all applied for an internship and we didn't get the internship, but they all, they hired us as um, part-timers for the summer. And if you did well in that summer, you got hired on as to work during the school year, which was great. And if you didn't screw up the obits, you got to do, you got to do briefs, you got to do city meetings, the most boring meetings in the world, but you got to go cover them. And we covered them all as young reporters. It was terrific. And the, if you, if you wrote obits uh, so, and you turned them in and the, the night city editor would say, you know, this might be interesting, check this out. And then you'd go try to find a couple of real interesting graphs about that person. And those sometimes turned into stories and, and longer obits. So that was, that was great, just great. And, and what is the system like now? The system now is the regular newsroom doesn't see any of the obits that are called in. Those are all classified ads that go down to the advertising section. So we don't, or the newsroom doesn't see them. If you're gonna write a news obit, you gotta have your, your antenna up or you, somebody's gotta be able to pass along the information that somebody died. And you know, this is Madison where you can fall over and, and see a world famous researcher right next to you. They're everywhere. And uh, the really interesting people die here all the time. And they don't, these days, they just don't get the attention or the local recognition in the news that they probably deserve, I think. Is that a reflection of the economics of the fact that the staffs have been so whittled back to- A direct, even, even... A di it's, a, it's a direct reflection on that, the lack of staff, um, and not for the lack of wanting to do it, but there's nobody to do it and no place to put it. That's the problem. That overlaps, there's like, like an expanding circle where, that means that there's not a space for creative obit writing either. I mean, if you can't do the, what you consider to be the, the important people in the community, you're not going to be looking for those unusual ones either. You just no space for it, which was great for me when I was writing because we had the space and I had the time to say, well, you know, this looks interesting. Let's, let me just follow this down the hole a little bit and see what happens if there's something interesting to write about. We just, just, there's nobody to do that anymore. That's too bad. Yeah, so, so the payday obits are A, a reflection of the fact that they don't have the staff to write the right. creative ones, and B, it's a revenue generating thing. Oh yeah, it's the, a, an obit is very expensive. My mom just died a couple of weeks ago, and I think her obit cost us $1,000 in the paper, in the La Crosse Tribune. It's, that's a lot of money. Of course, I wrote a long obit for her. But... <laughs> we both wrote our parents' obits. That's a very yes. straight, that, that's a really interesting experience to, to go through. It's an intimate experience and you find out things that you didn't know before. And you also get a chance to point out qualities of your parents that nobody else knows about or nobody may have known at all. I don't know about you, but I didn't mind I didn't mind in advance because my dad was was went through a long period of dementia. So I talked with him before that started and made sure I asked him questions about things while he was still coherent, which was really important for writing a good obit for him. An honest, I'm saying good, I'm, I mean an honest obit. A good obit is an honest obit, whether it's one you write as a creative exercise for like in the book, those are short stories. Those aren't paid obits, but also for, People you know, I mean, 
I owe it to my family or my my parents to be honest about them in their obits, but not to be, you know, angry or degrading or anything like that. But my dad was not the same person in his last three years of his life as he was the first 88 of his life. He was like a completely different person. Why remember him for his last three years instead of when he was horse trading for a new car on the way home from the depot on in 1943, mm -hmm. stuff like that. And my mom was the same. I found out things about her childhood when I interviewed her for her obit that I never, ever, ever heard her talk about. I mean, complete abject poverty that she grew up in was, I'd never known that. And I hear friends of my age or my era finding this about their parents suddenly just before they die, which is sad in a way, but good that they finally know that, yeah, they're there are other aspects of your family that you don't know about that might be interesting to your family. So it was a it was a good experience. And it was a way to use the skills that I have in asking questions, or that I think I have on on my parents or like that. It worked out pretty good. Yeah. My, they had good they had my mom had a good obit and she had a good death. It was good. Yeah. My condolences, of course. Uh, I take you. it though it was it was one of those normal cycle of life things that Yes. Yes, she's 92. In fact, her birthday was yesterday, I think. Yeah. So. Um, have you written yours? Well, good question, <laughs> because um, I've written it twice, but but I wrote it back in 1972. Oh, that no, no you got you got to update it, George. Yeah, I should, I should probably update it. And it was a it was a um, a result of you know a bunch of us. It was equally guys and girls working late at night at the State Journal newsroom, um, kind of bored and. And we're typing away and doing our jobs. And all of a sudden we decided, well, let's all write our own obits. So I wrote mine. In fact, it's in my file at the State Journal in my in the, in the morgue of all places. <laughs> uh, and it's uh, I was living at 540 West Mifflin Street at the time, 1972, a good time to be on Mifflin Street. And uh, I, I believe I have two versions. In one of them, my body is found on the bottom of Lake Wingra with uh, a typewriter attached to me by paper clips. So how I came up with that, I don't know. And the other one is, uh, I think it's a knife. I was um, killed by, an, by an, in a knife attack. But those parts, of course, are made up. But all the other information in there is absolutely accurate. You know, where I worked, address, names of relatives, and stuff like that. So yeah, that's there. It's, yeah, you're right. I should probably update that. <laughs> if it's the last story about us we want to get it right yeah exactly yeah and you, i don't know if you noticed this but the, in the front of my book um there's a quote from a neuroscientist yes an author, yeah which uh it's an unusual quote but it's right you know the last time the third time you die is when your name is spoken for the last time which i think is uh, uh an interesting way of describing your last death so anyway, yeah. There's a line from Jim Harrison that death steals everything yeah. except yeah, our yeah, stories. Yeah. yeah. Doug brought uh, that up too. It's, I, wish I'd, I wish I had used it actually. It's a, it's a good quote. One of the, the pieces in the book is about your cousin, Gary. Gary Hesselberg, yep. And you close that obit by referring to the line in the Bruce Springsteen song, Glory yeah. Days, about the best moments of life that pass you by that are gone. Yeah in the week of an eye. And your rebuttal is, no, those moments aren't gone until you are. Right, exactly. And, which is, 
exactly the point that Bruce himself made in the tour after Clarence Clemens died. He really? Said, he said, Clarence didn't leave the band when he died. He will leave the band when we die. Uh, great, great line. Great line. So that's, too, that's terrifically astute. That's correct. Yeah. Huh. And that's exactly the point that both Harrison is making and that your epigram makes yeah, that, that yeah, it's true. recounting the stories keeps people alive. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. We're, we're talking to George Hesselberg. His book is Deadlines, Slices of Life from the Obit Beat. Now, these are not the actual obituaries. These are stories based on obituaries, based on people who died that you then reported afterwards. Right, exactly. And, the, and there's, so there's two or three meanings to the word deadlines here. They all are written on deadline. Uh, it's not like I had like a month or two months to work on these stories, except for one, Angel, Angel Babcock Richardson, who I got a chance to work a little bit extra on because it turned out her background was so extraordinary. Uh, but otherwise, they're, they're, they're deadlines and there are deadlines. And you're right, I found them. I found them by myself, basically, just keeping my ears open. Or I just happened to ha have a question about, I saw something that didn't make sense, and I wanted to try to find out why it was there or what happened. Some of them from the early days, I got just because I would ride along with the coroner or the deputy coroner, and, and just to see what was going on. That the, um, the water utility guy who repaired water utilities for the city of Madison, I think his name is Harry Sprecht, I was I was on that call. I saw I saw that all that stuff in that story, and it was just a fascinating glimpse to me of of a life and a death. It just and it was one of two or three suicides in this book. You know, the rule, general rule in writing suicides for newspapers is you don't write them. You just don't. In this case, since I was writing a column, I was able to use to write suicides in in good taste you know not terrible terrible stories i'm saying because they're not not writing about deaths as you say i'm writing about lights so that worked so i would write along on cop calls or death investigations or coroner call outs to see what they were and that's what that one was that's a couple of them i got that way or just if you recall in the city county building the corner where bud chamberlain and don scullion and and later phil little and uh, wasepka and John Stanley in that corner office there, you know, you could stop in there and have a chat with the coroner's office and see what was going on and with her, were there any interesting deaths or lives or anything like that. And I picked up good daily stories that way. One of them was a woman who died, whose body was found on this Capitol Square, sleeping on one of those, not sleeping, but dead on one of those iron benches. Uh, a fascinating story of a, of a woman who's, she was a homeless woman, but in her, in her layers of clothing were little bundles of, of paper with money in the bundles. And she ran her own sort of church. Uh, and she ended up having over $800 or something in her pockets. But she froze, she froze to death or died of natural causes, I guess, up on the square. Uh, that was an early story, too, where I just uh, picked up just in keeping my ears open on calls. So, so these would have been almost contemporaneous with the actual obituary? Oh, yes, yes. Or, or some of them didn't even get obituaries. That's the thing. I mean, if there's a death investigation and nobody bought, an, uh, nobody's bought by that time or called in an obit, you just have to keep your ears open. 
I would go through police reports looking for death investigations and then follow it up and try to make sure things were correct. There's, a, there's a, an interesting one in here. I don't know, did you ever know Stanley Kaufman? Who I was knew a, of him, yeah. He was a lawyer, worked with the city county building. Yeah, yeah. Come, totally, perpetually rumpled guy. And, uh, but he was respected by other uh, public defenders, for example, and defense attorneys because he was a smart guy. He just was a rumpled guy. And the best description was another lawyer was trying to say what kind of guy he was. He, well, he always had saltines in his pockets because he'd take the saltines from the cafeteria. <laughs> but that was, a, that was one of those ones where you just pay attention to what's going on and, and maybe there's a story there. His death, in fact, he died in New York and, and they brought the body back here. But then, and I talked with the New York uh, medical examiner's office and they never really found out what killed him. And his mother in Florida, was, I was in contact with her and she just never really bothered to follow it or to find out what happened. I know it was an amazing follow-up story and uh, I did follow it for a while. In the end, it was just given up. But the interesting part was he was a collector of very interesting and original African art and a, somewhat of an expert on it. And his apartment apparently was had a lot of it in it. I don't know what happened to it all. It's speaking just one of, of those things. Speaking of follow-ups, there, there is one story in here about somebody who did not die, uh, a two-year-old yeah. girl who survived a car crash that killed yeah. her parents. And then, then she survived three hours in below freezing temperatures in a snowbank off I know. I-94. Do you know what ever happened to her? It's good you asked that because I do know what happened to her. She is living and uh, in uh, Minnesota and she's probably about, about 20 22 now. Yeah. About 22, 23 years old. Yeah, right about there. And she's in college. Yeah, that's, she's, I decided not to invade her privacy anymore. And, and the goal with this book was to just print them as they were, were written. And there's a couple editor's notes on some of these uh, that you'll notice. But with her, I decided to let her be. Uh, she's, but she's definitely alive and well. And the survivor, one of the most amazing stories I've ever, ever written. Just amazing story. I think she's alive because there was a, a police woman. Uh, there was the a state trooper right? who was, who yeah. was a woman who was alert to the fact that, wait a minute, there's an infant missing there's something missing here that she found a toy and ended up hours later finding the baby, almost a baby, who had crawled into the ditch on the interstate highway after her parents were killed in a terrible accident with a semi. It's just an amazing story. And the, the state trooper at the time was pregnant yeah. also. It was just an amazing, it was, it was you know, it was one of those contrasting stories where it's a sad story and a happy story. You know, thank goodness that somebody followed this. It was hard to believe story. Great story. Yeah. Now, th That's these these stories overlap the period where you were a reporter and then a columnist. How, how were they presented? How were they slugged or identified? Some of them ran as a, as a column. Yeah. Some of them just ran as a story, just a plain old news story. The earlier ones, I'm trying to remember how they were played. They things change so much in the design and graphics of a newspaper. It's hard to really recall how they played it. Depends on who's running the, running the design of the paper, frankly, yeah. if you're talking about how they're presented in the news. Um, I got good play on almost all of them. 
the goal was to present the stories as written because I, one of the reasons I chose these is because I thought they were kind of timeless stories. In other words, you couldn't tell unless there was a date on it when it happened. You really couldn't. Explain the genesis of the book. Someone had asked me to look up an old obit of Cornelius Cook, the, the guy who lived in the dilapidated RV over by the zoo. And I went back and I found it in the archives. And I thought, you know, that reads pretty good. Uh, so I actually posted it on Facebook. And somebody said, you know, that's really a pretty good obit. That's pretty good stuff. And I thought, yeah, well, it is. And then two things happened. Number one, I was talking about this with two other journalists, Dennis McGann and Dennis Chapman. And we talked about obits and how I liked, I loved writing them. I just really enjoyed it. And then I was uh, enrolled in um, Krista Smith's novel writing class because <laughs> I thought I'd be writing in the world's greatest novel after I retired. Of course, we all think that. And it became obvious that I didn't like writing about stuff that was made up. Uh, I kind of preferred real stuff. And, and, I was, and I went back to the obits and I thought, you know, these are kind of timeless. And I'm sorry that other people don't know about these people. I mean, it's not vanity for me, it's vanity for them. Because I thought, these are, these are the important parts of the background of everybody's picture of their life. They're not, they're not up there singing the main song, but they're in the chorus of our lives. And, uh, and that means that they're, I just didn't want them to be forgotten. So I thought, the only way I can do that is to put them together and make a pitch. So I, got, I went through, went to the archives and went to the digital archives and went to the, the clip archives back in the real morgue and did searches. I came up with hundreds of obits I had written just to, actually, you want to have some fun, just do a search of George Hesselberg and death and you'll get lots of, lots of responses. And I cut those down to ones that I thought were, number one, interesting to read, number two, not too short, number three, not full of bureaucratic bullshit or we're just captains of industry or, or especially politicians because those kind of stories, I think I've said this before and I'm probably quoting another person from a hundred years ago. Those are news stories that are snow, snow people. They kind of melt. And these just didn't melt. When I looked at them and read them, they were worth reading again and I liked, liked them. So I cut those down to a couple hundred. And then of course I noticed it was hard to miss that I'd done obits of animals, and which I'd never realized I'd done that many stories about animals that died. Uh, and so I threw in a few of those that I thought read well, and they turned out to be pretty fun too. So I ended up with, you know, 70 or so slugs, and I didn't know where to put it. And I thought, well, this gives a better, this population, I considered it a population of a village. This gives a better idea of the type of people you'll find in Wisconsin than what the stereotypes are. In other words, that farmer in Portage may have survived a concentration camp for two years and been on a forced march for three months and he'll never talk about it until, and now, but now he's dead and it's just an amazing story. Try to write that in, in uh, 16 column inches. It's not easy to do, but there are ways to get that information. For example, the, the Wisconsin um, Veterans Museum has an incredible archives of interviews with veterans. And I found this guy's interview in their archives of what had happened to him. And there's just an amazing, there's an amazing cachet of interesting histories of Wisconsin people all over the place. If you look for it and find and know where to look. So I had I had that kind of a resource. 
and it ended up, and then it is then it was a then it was a decision of finding which ones to keep, which ones not to keep. We and then it was a question of how to how to arrange them. In the end, we decided to go with um, chronological because it just you just couldn't you just can't put compartmentalize all these all these people and subjects. Uh, and I think we only tossed out a couple, two or three that uh, either they didn't want in there or or I thought were just just didn't fit. And then of course, I'm, as you're aware, I'm, I'm sure <laughs> they use sensitivity police now on on copy, going through the copy. When I say copy, I mean the the words, going through the words and finding out where words that you could use 30 years ago in a newspaper article you just can't use today. And that was the case only in maybe one or two art of the articles of the stories, which was which I thought was that which convinced me I was right that these stories do hold up. They are readable and actually more relatable than readable. So that was good. That worked out good. And then um, I pitched it to the historical society, and they liked it. So that was good. Turned out and good. How did you deal with those two or three instances of words that were, were no longer really acceptable? I, I I actually agreed with the main one, and that you remember the story of the skeleton in the chimney? Yeah. Who can forget right. that? Yeah. No, it's hard to forget it. And uh, I I made it a point of my existence to make sure people didn't uh, forget it but there was a question um by the uh a copy editor for the book that um, i used the word because the, the skeleton the, the person who died at first they thought it was a woman because it was a, it was a skeleton and it was women's clothes and women's jewelry then later um wonder of wonders they discovered it was a man dressed as a woman so the term I used and was used at the time was cross-dresser, which apparently, and I, this is news to me, is not a, a word that you can use these days. I don't know, I've, I've never understood why, but I decided it wasn't the battleground I wanted to fight on. So I said, we'll just find a way around it. And that's what we did. It's, I, I still should have done some more research on it, but cross-dresser to me meant, because you can't make a value judgment on somebody or a, or a pile of skeleton, a pile of bones or, and clothes, but you can describe what it is. It was uh, somebody dressed, a, a man dressed as a woman. So I just didn't object to it. It was fine. It, it, and the, the story reads good. And I don't, I don't think I've had as good a copy editor as I've been, I've been blessed over the years to have really good copy editors. And the ones at the uh, historical society specifically were excellent. Just and, and the thing is, if I were to if I were to put this book out there again, I would intentionally take one out of order and finish the book with it, and just because I think it's incredibly an appropriate ending for a book like this. Uh, I won't. It's to me, it was um, a natural ending, but it would have been out of order. So, well, which just, which one was that? That was the. Uh, and I'm not, you know, I don't want to spoil it for anybody, but there's one very short poignant death in here of a man who went, took the bus downtown Madison to go shopping. He was 80 something. And it started raining and he went into a, I think Chadburn to, to wait it out. And he died while he was waiting it out. What I think, what I consider to be the best part of that story is the last line because 
this 87 year old man who went downtown and died, went downtown to buy a calendar. I just find that so poignant. I don't, and I thought it was, in fact, I tear up just thinking about it because I mean, what better, what better example of, of hope, of, of hope than, than to be him and, and dying on the day that you buy a calendar? Because why do you buy a calendar? I mean, it's just, I like, I just thought that was a great, I thought that would be a great way to end this book, at, on a, uh, but it, it didn't fly, so. Hmm. The fact that you're getting emotional just retelling this story, did being on the obit beat and writing this book affect your view of life and death? Oh, absolutely. In, in so many ways. And not just for the, these kind of obits, but for writing. I mean, I covered crime in medicine for many years and that had an effect also. But as far as writing about these people and, and the deaths of people, some of whom I knew, it made me a, a better person in general, just because you become humble about it. I mean, all journalists are, are egotists, I think, or what we would call in another language, egoists. But you can't help but feeling humbled when you talk to these, what some people would consider to be ordinary people who are just, were extraordinary persons. They weren't people, they were persons. That's one thing that I really am grateful for. The other thing in writing these is that first impressions are never correct, never, ever, ever correct. And I've learned that not only with this, but in, in just being a journal newspaper reporter forever. There are people, and I, I mean, I've been doing this all my life and you meet all kinds of people and there are those who thrust themselves forward and there are those who stand back and watch. And there are those who live and there are those who narrate and they're sometimes they're not always the same person sometimes they are the same person but chronicling lies and trying to do it in a way that you explain them to other people it's one thing to explain it to yourself because you you cogitate and you keep in your mind this person's like this this person's like that but you try to explain that to another person in writing i mean your my job is to communicate and if somebody doesn't understand what i write that's not their problem that's a george problem so i think I want to make this. I want to make this so somebody likes to read it and wants to read it, and maybe there's something in there that might, they might be able to learn about it. I already learned it, and I never, <clears throat> I never left a death. I always took part of it with me. I always, always, always. Uh, there's a. I just, I just remember a lot of them. So has anyway. Any, um, has anybody done a serious study of cop shop reporters and reporters who over years and years write about crime and death and, and, and seeing what sort of impact that has I, I don't know. I, I, I suspect there has been, but I know, I know it had a, um, I, even, I can even tell you the incident that, uh, that made me decide not, to, not to, to try to get out of crime reporting. And that was a death too. And it's, uh, it was many years ago. 
there were two deaths. Um, one was uh, um, a fire in a house outside of Madison where a little a boy had in his pajamas. He was in his pajamas, you know, the kind of pajamas with feet, you know, little kid. He had climbed out of bed and gone to the kitchen and managed to turn on the stove or the, the, the elements on the top of the stove. And he climbed up there and he started himself on fire. And he died, but in the reports, they had to describe the fact that his burning feet left footprints in the carpet. And that just killed me. It just killed me. I said, I don't wanna, I don't wanna do this anymore. I had two little boys, you know, I just, I just didn't wanna do it anymore. I mean, that was, that was a terrible story. So, and then on another, <laughs> one night I was home, it was a Friday night, and I got a call from a dispatcher, a friendly dispatcher, who was tipping me off saying, you might want to get down here, George, we got a, a, a murder, murder case, and there's two little kids here. And so I, so I went down to the city county building, and I got in to the Dane County Sheriff's Office in the squad room, and there were two little kids, you know, maybe a brother and a sister, maybe four and five, just being kids, but they're real quiet. Their father had killed their mother, and the father was outside in the car, and uh, they had nobody to take care of the two little kids. This is a Friday night, and I was on a deadline, of course, because I tipped off the city desk, and, you know, there's a story coming down. I'll, I'll call it in, and uh, uh, they had nobody to take care of the kids, so one of the detectives said to me, George, you want to take care of these kids while we go take care of this? I said, yeah, well, sure, I can take care of kids. This is before we had kids. Um, so I was me and these two kids, two little kids. And I thought, and I, you know, and I kept them company and I tried to write a story on the side and I called in the murder story. They arrested the dad. Uh, and so another, one of the, one of the angels of the Madison Police Department and came in and said, well, we'll take these kids. And I said, okay, but where are you going to take them? And they said at the time, you know, at the time, there's only one place to take them. And that was the Dane County Advocates for Battered Women which would take these little kids in because there's nobody there to take care of them at the last minute, you know, and I put that in the back of my head. And since that time, I don't know how many, a gazillion years ago, since that time, I anonymously and then, and I do it now just as a matter of course, I, I would, after that, I would show up at the Dane County Advocates for Battered Women, which had a secret place at the time. On Thanksgiving, we just before Thanksgiving, and say, "What's your menu?" And they'd say, "Well, we got this and this and this." I said, "Good." And I'd go away, and I'd get everything on the menu, and I'd come back and leave the grocery bags there, saying, "This is for the kids." And I go, "That was it." And um, which is probably unethical for a journalist to do that, I guess. But I never wrote about them really, and um, it's just a tradition that continued and continued and continued. And they mostly didn't really know who I was. I just would say, what's your menu? And it's been interesting to see the changes in the menu over the time because of <laughs> depending on the, the populace. This is so long ago and the, the different names ago and different addresses ago that I'm not violating any confidences because that's just was an effect. One of the effects of covering crime like that, since you asked, that's one of them. Um, you, don't, you don't forget these things. You just don't. It, it just doesn't happen. I don't know I don't know any other police reporter who, who doesn't remember everything or little bits of things. And the deaths, all, all, the, all those murders over the times and, and 
accidents and disasters and travesties and life is unfair kind of things. Look at Kenny Stout in this book, the Verona guy who, whose mother died frozen death in her house while watching Johnny Carson uh, in Verona, of all places, right downtown. How does that happen? I mean, what do you learn from something like that? They were surrounded at the time. Their house was surrounded by very nice, classic raised ranches and ranches in Verona. How does a 80-something-year-old woman freeze to death in a falling-down house with one, it had one electrical outlet and there was into the TV and a coal stove and 22 cats. I mean, how do you not remember that? And and I, I mean, I showed up there with Roger Turner, the world's greatest photographer, and we, we and Kenny was there, Kenny Stout, skinny old guy, the, the long water, we had a water about that long on his nose. And he had nothing. He had 22 cats and uh, no food and a TV and a coal stove. So I, and I told Roger, I said, well, we were there for a while and we chatted with him. I said, can he stay here? And I went around the corner, five minutes away, I went over to Bill's grocery store and bought a couple of bags of groceries and some cat food and came back. And I said, here you go, Kenny, we'll be back. And, um, uh, and we, and I was later too, but that's, that's something where, you know, you have a chance to help a little bit and then you write it and then it gets better. And Kenny, if you'll read this, read the deadlines, uh, had a had a actually a happy ending, not like his mom, but Kenny did. So, uh, yeah, I remember that like it was yesterday. I just and this was how long ago? Twenty two cats. <laughs> Amazing. All, all my journalism was was covering meetings, and I don't remember a one of them. Oh, I don't remember any of the meetings at all. I remember. <laughs> that's a, that's a great observation. If you ask me what meetings I remember, I remember a police and fire commission meeting where the whole night was taken up by one lady who was so mad about the police not arresting somebody who let the dog poop on her yard. The entire meeting. <laughs> <laughs> I also remember uh, one other meeting, it was like a planning, planning commission subcommittee meeting where one of the TV guys <laughs> just came in, poked his head in the door, said, any news here? And they said, nope, and he off he went. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, they, they were not much competition now, were they? <laughs> no, but the thing is, as you say, there's a difference. The difference is, you know, you know, even if you were a cops reporter, there'd be six or seven other reporters on that story. And now it's crickets. It really is it's not happening. The, the, the fact that you got a call on, on that, the terrible story about the, the two kids, the fact that somebody in the coroner's office of the cop shop gave you a call. How important was it that you had friends in the cop shop and friends in the coroner's office who would let you know what was going on? Yeah, there's a, so now, and now we can split hairs a little bit. I, I knew them to trust, to know the ones that I would trust. They knew that I would, they could trust me to, to because I appreciate, I wanted to get it right. So it took a while to become friends with any of them. And some of them I definitely was not friends with. But the ones who knew that they could trust me for to not screw it up or to play politics with it, those are the ones who either called me or I could call them. In those days, you know, without cell phones or anything like that, you walked around with a, with a, a police scanner all the time. Now on, if I was a police reporter, I had that scanner and I knew there were calls and I, you knew the numbers and what they were. 
and also I've made regular calls to the to the dispatch office, and they knew me and knew my voice, and they could they knew whether there was anything that I to tell me, on the in several and when there's something important, they would they would give me a tip. I'd have to do the work, of course. On the other hand, that worked against me once in a while. I remember uh, uh, they'd play jokes on you, the dispatchers. There was uh, once that was sent off. I think that I think the uh, the there's a dirigible for the UW football game. I think it was the whatever whatever the blimp whatever blimp that was that went to football games. And the the, <laughs> the county dispatcher. I was working cops. You know, it's an all day beat. And they called me all excited saying that the blimp had come untethered over DeForest. And there was, a, and I should get out there and cover the damn thing. Of course, it didn't become untethered over DeForest. I was on the road trying to find this blimp of DeForest. Another time, the dispatcher, you know, you call and you ask what's going on, and they tell you this or that. Or if they don't like reporters, they say nothing, no matter what's going on. But once they said that, uh, oh, yeah, there's a famous Chinese detective in town covering a murder. And I said, really? I said, who's that? And they said, um, Nami Lanou, Detective Nami Lanou. No middle initial, last name unknown. <laughs> and I was, all, I was all calling around saying, who's the Chinese detective? <laughs> so yeah, they trust. They, I think it was more of a question of trust. And I did make some good friends uh, uh, who were, were lasting friends through all the different political machinations in the in the department because I played it straight. I really did play it straight. And that's, and I wasn't, I didn't lie to them. I said, if I wanted something, I said, this is what I want. And so that, that helped a lot. I didn't cover up it when, cover it up when they did wrong too. So that was, and that was important. So then they'd say, well, he'll play it straight on this. And that, then I did. And those are the days, you know, when they had you know, Chief Cooper had A teams and B teams and everybody was sniping at each other like this. And the famous affinity files came out from the protests and the fire department was assigning a, a secret photographer to shoot the shoot the crowds at fire scenes, you know, looking for possible arsonists. I mean, imagine that if the crowd scenes, whether you were guilty or not, they had, they had a photographer shooting them. <laughs> it was amazing. So, yeah, it was... Yeah, and those, those things come out eventually. As I told... As I said a couple of weeks ago, um, regarding a, a fiasco with the police coverage, you know, no matter what they say, it will come out. It will always come out. It always does. There's no question about it. Uh, did you ever learn something embarrassing about somebody's past that maybe their friends or family didn't know about? And you face the dilemma of writing this story, maybe the last story about them and potentially blowing their cover? Yeah, yeah. Um, and thank you for correctly using the word dilemma, a choice between two bad things. The, um, I don't think I ever learned anything specific like that. And it's not for lack of asking. Uh, because sometimes when you're writing longer obits about, you know, important people, I mean, important newspaper people, newspaper type people, the newspapers would put on page one, you have you a good reporter will call not only the friends they'll call the enemies and say what made you you know think twice before you either help this person or talk to this person or or agree to cooperate with this person that's really a good way to get good insights into people because a lot of enemies really like their other enemies they really do they 
respect them. And I would do that. And I, I can't recall ever getting anything super embarrassing about anybody like that. And I would never put it in just because it's embarrassing. If it, if it was relevant to the story or the person or their life, I would use it, I guess. And sometimes it, people who are public figures, they're, they're so public figures that their embarrassing moments have been made public many, many, many times. So it's just one of those things you check off, I guess. But no, I can't. Yeah, and some of them just aren't worth following up. You know, a, a person's peccadillo in 40 years ago, to me, is not something you throw into an obit. I just wouldn't unless it affected what happened later, I guess. In some parts of that kind of research, humanity might take over too. I've, I've come to believe that you have to be a human. <laughs> it's not the way always that we're taught to be, but you think, well, do I do more harm or good with this? That's the thing. I don't know. The pieces in the book cover from 79 to 2017. Yeah. Did do you think your approach to writing or your writing style changed any over that time? Great observation, because I think it did. I mean, I read through this, this is chronological, and it's, a, it's an excellent indication on how my writing evolved and how I tried not to become predictable, because these I'm trying to think that these stories are not formulaic, which I like, another reason I like about that. But I definitely think that the style changes from in those 40 years, it can't do anything but change. And you can tell sometimes, you can tell the ones that are written on really tough deadlines. I mean, you got a couple hours to write this and you're done, or the ones that I've taken more time or have been allowed to take time. And I'm, I have to say again, that I benefited from a whole staff of copy editors, which they don't have now, who, you know, my, before that column got in the paper, for example, on the Tuesday, Thursday, Sunday, or whatever it was, there'd be, uh, first of all, I always bounced a copy off somebody I know before I turned it in. And then the, the turned into the, to the city desk and they read it and copy edited it. And then they sent it over to the copy desk and they copy edited it. And it might get one more look. That'd be four looks before it got in the paper. And that's that I benefited from that. And I benefited from the fact that most of them would not touch the, the style at all. They might touch the content or said, this is spelled wrong, or this doesn't make sense, but they wouldn't touch the style. And I was, I was, I was a great benefactor of that kind of, not lenience, but um, clear thinking in my, you know, an editor is an absolutely necessary evil, as all reporters will tell you. But in this, in these cases, most of them, uh, they, they improve the product. Um, I've had other experiences with editors that was opposite, of course, uh, you don't do this for, for that long without, you know, go screaming out of the newsroom and saying, how could you take my prose and turn it into garbage, which sometimes I turn in garbage and they turn it into prose. It works both ways. <laughs> We're not all perfect. As you noted, several of the selections are about animals, including a yes. polar bear, a tarantula, and some more domesticated species. Hmm. Was it hard to get those editors to let you write a, write these stories about animals? Those, in almost all the animals' cases, I had to I had to tell them first that I'm going to look at this. Uh, otherwise, generally, I just take off and do it. The some just showed up, and I said I can't let this one go because it's such a great story, 
or it's the story that that uh, the <laughs> the fact that you know did you know that the Cottage Grove Lions Club had a rival to Jimmy the Groundhog in Sun Prairie? Did you know that? And it I was a not, I had I had not known that. Wait a minute, it's a it was a media conspiracy. I mean, they had a, a pot-bellied pig named Hamlet that did the same thing as Jimmy every year, and Jimmy got all the publicity. But if you wanted a good breakfast, you went over to Cottage Grove Lions Club and with their pig Hamlet, which who I I just had a blast writing that because I got to go all crazy on Shakespeare and and find out the background of Hamlet, who had a career. And when you think about niche careers, he had a career. You know how principals are always saying, if you if you kids do this, I'll kiss a pig. Well, Hamlet was the pig. And they, the Hamlet would show up and be the pig that the principal had to kiss. I think it was a great career. That's a that was a that was a fun little story, too. But but um, and generally I pitch those ahead of time and say, this might be a good story. Be on the lookout for this. And then I'd go and, you know, the tarantula was a no brainer. That was fun. And the, there's two dogs, two cats, uh, a cat named Rover, which I love, and um, a chimpanzee, the polar bear. Is there anything else? I can't think. I think that's about it. Yeah. Did, did so, those get a particular response from the readership? All positive every single time, especially the uh, chief, the polar bear, who was so, at the time, so loved by uh, the community and and everybody was, you know, the, the the poor cop who had to shoot him, you know, took a lot of grief from people who didn't understand it. But uh, Chief was so, and he was missed. And in the end, they had to, re, they, they went out of their way to, to replace him. And uh, I got a lot of good, good response on that one. All the animal ones. When you, the thing is, you write these with kind of a wink of the, not the Chief one, but the other ones, the, the cats and the dogs. You write those with a kind of a sly wink saying, this, this is going to be fun. Just sit quiet and read this. You're going to, you're going to like this. So, Which are the, the stories that you knew when you, when you realized you were going to do the book? Which are the ones that just jumped out at you and said, oh, this one, these stories absolutely are in the book? Who were who the ones that, that, that stayed oh, through the well, longest? Cornelius, Cornelius Cook was there for sure. The guy in the old RV. Uh, Angel, even though that's a longer story and I got to... And, Bless Joyce Daly, who came over and gave me permission to spend some time on it, uh, tracking her background. The um, the street lady, uh, Angel, uh, I, that one was in there for sure. Uh, one of them that's not in there that I wanted to be in there and that I ended up agreeing to be was a, a suicide of a friend of mine that I took out. We agreed to take out because it was just too personal. And um, the short order cook at the Echo Tap, Tyler Kremen. I wish I could have spent more time on the guy uh, because he seemed like a classic person, just a classic person. He was a nice guy. He was missing and he ended up being where he was, where he was. And they found him in the back of his van. And he was, uh, and there was a, there are good memories of him from the people who worked with him, which doesn't happen all the time. When one, you know, one of the, one of the waitresses at the Echo told me, remembered it, it's in the story that he was so nice that he would make me a grilled cheese sandwich and cut it into quarters for him because he said he did that for his little sister or something when she was little. And, and I considered him that short story to be a really good story, a good, I wanted him in there. And 
the small town police chief who was a good tickler. I think it's my impression that if you die and one of your daughters, the first thing she can think of you is that you were a good tickler. I think that would be just a wonderful legacy, just a wonderful legacy. And so I, I wanted that one in there. And the guy who rode his, um, his airplane, his shot up airplane, he rode the back of it down to the ground and was captured. And I liked him because of his quote. He's, he was in a concentration camp and at the end, and it was like a, not an easy concentration as if there's an easy one. In the end, they marched him and all the other members of this concentration camp from February 9th to April 17th, marched him all that time. And you know what his comment was about that? His comment was, well, in the end, I figured we marched from uh, Soldiers Grove to Minneapolis four times. <laughs> I mean, how can you not like a guy like that? It's just, you want, you want, him, you want people to read that and learn from it and, and say, well, here's something I could, I could emulate or add to my own humanity, I think, so. Does everybody have an, an interesting story in them? Yeah, absolutely. They may not know it. They may need someone to ask them the right question, but they all have interesting stories. It may not be interesting to them, but it's interesting to me. There's two guys in here uh, who went around and gathered excess squash and then distributed them to people who needed squash. And those two guys were just characters and they had longtime partners um, and that's what they did. And they were just helpful to people. If they saw a need or they saw there was a surplus in vegetables, they'd fill their car with vegetables and go out and give it away. And squash was what they liked to do. And they also liked to show up at at their friends in this small town, I can't remember the town, and and deliver a, a perfectly a perfect bouquet of flowers, just like that. And these two guys are in every community. They would not think that they were doing anything exceptional at all. But I, I swear that everybody has those stories that they don't think are stories. This is what I was talking to somebody the other day that these are is there are people who did not put themselves forwards as being anything exceptional at all. And in, in my business, or what was my business, you run into people all the time who want to be in the paper. What I've done needs recognition. I mean, that they demand it. Um, it's charitable operations, you know, good deeds. It's only a good deed to them if it gets recognized. Well, these are people who did good deeds and they weren't recognized and they're perfectly happy about it or they didn't realize they were making an impression on other people, which to me is another good example of the humanity in all of us. It's part of that original pitch. These are the people of Wisconsin. They're not cookie cutter people. They're different. We're all different. I think I mentioned to Rob the other day, I'm in this codger swimming, codger pool exercise class, which is good for my joints and the real ones and the fake ones. And at the end of every class, there's like 30 of us in there, mostly women, but a few men, men are so vain. We get, we're in the pool, there's 30 of us. And we all, at the end, we all have to line up on the edges and do our, and do exercises. And I look around and I see 30 people my age or much older, actually some of them, and a little bit down to about 60. And we are just, a picture of different people. I mean, heads, arms, tummies, neck, everything is just 
different. But then all of a sudden, the 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 the, the instructor says, "Do this," and we all will move our arm this way and around, or our knee around that, and it looks like a perfectly synchronized, but but out of shape caterpillar. And I think you know this. We need all of us to exist and do our separate exercises to stay here and make a good contribution. It doesn't matter whether we get recognition or not. And there need to be people who see that and say, well, you know, there, there's something to be said here for this person or that type of person. This, that's another reason there aren't, any, there aren't any really big crooks in this book either, you notice. And I did a lot of coverage of crooks. Um, I, I just decided to keep crime out of it mostly. So that worked out pretty good. Wrote about people who are characters without knowing their characters. Yeah, those are great people. You know, you know, even Ken Hur, he's, Ken Hur may be the most, at the time, recognizable character in this book, you know, the, the first lawyer to advertise and stuff like that. But he wasn't, he was like that. I mean, he was like that. It wasn't like he put on a persona to do this commercial. He was absolutely like that. That's like Eddie, back in the day, Eddie Benelson. He was like that. He wasn't, he wasn't putting on a show. That was the way Eddie was. Eddie, of course, was also a really kind person uh, in a lot of ways. So anyway. Yeah. Ken Hur in 1967, Ken Hur made a point of driving on the restrict, driving the, on the um, one, the wrong way bus lane on University right. Avenue to get arrested, to challenge, to challenge right. the whole concept. Well, and that's, and that was a good, wasn't that right after the accident there? Yeah. Where the football player yeah. lost his leg? Yeah. Yeah, you know, when I first came down here in 69, I thought, what a stupid thing. This has got, I'm shocked people don't die on this spot right every day, or a bicyclist or somebody. Yeah. It was strange. Yeah. yeah. That was Ken Hur, huh? That's interesting. Huh. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's okay. amazing the people's background. You know, um, remember Michael Briggs? Absolutely, yeah. Well, you know, I think he was the first person to burn his draft card. Yep, yep. yep. Well, I think you and I talked about this yeah. once. Yeah. 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 We had yeah. a photo of it in the finals, yeah. Yeah, great guy. He's he's missed. Well, I'm afraid that is all the time we have with George Hesselberg. Again, well, that was fun. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed it too. Yeah, we yeah we went for a long time, and I'll only have four FCC violations I need to bleep out. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. The book is Deadlines: Slices of Life from the Obit Beat by George Hesselberg from our very good friends at the Wisconsin Historical Society yep. Press. Good people. Next week on Mass and Bookbeat, Lisa S. Johnson with her book, Immortal Axes, Guitars That Rock. Until then, oh. on behalf of News and Public Affairs Director Shelley Pittman and all of us here at Mass and Bookbeat, I'm Stu Levitin. Thank you for joining us. Now, as Ben Sidron plays us out with a little bit of Little Sherry, oh, ben. please stay tuned for Alex Walding White and All Around Jazz. You're listening to WORT, 89.9 FM, Madison, listener-sponsored community radio. Thank you.